0: Hello and welcome. I am Noura Erekad on behalf of Jadalia and Status Hour here with Omar Shaker, Israel Palestine Country Director for Human Rights Watch. Welcome to the program, Omar.
1: Thank you for having me, Noura.
0: So, in mid July 2016, Human Rights Watch applied to Israel's Ministry of the Interior for a work permit for Omar. Nearly six months later, on February 20th, 2017, the the ministry denied the request, claiming that human rights watches, public activities, and reports have, quote, engaged in politics in the service of Palestinian propaganda while falsely raising the banner of human rights. The ministry refused to review the decision after Human Rights Watch appealed it, citing that, quote, no special circumstances warrant authorizing Ahmed's entry into the country. Israel has refused Human Rights Watch access to the Gaza Strip since 2010, with one exception in 2016, but this refusal to enter the West Bank marks a new precedent. Uh, the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, and Palestine in general, um, is not alone on the list of excluded countries. Uh, where Human Rights Watch is limited access, other countries that have refused access to Human Rights Watch include Cuba, North Korea, Sudan, Uzbekistan, and Venezuela. Here with us is Omar Shakir to discuss this. He investigates human rights abuses in Israel, the West Bank, and Gaza. Prior to his current role, he was a Bertha Fellow at the Center for Constitutional Rights, where he focused on U.S. counterterrorism policies, including legal representation of Guantanamo detainees. As the 2013-14 Finberg Fellow at Human Rights Watch, he investigated human rights violations in Egypt, including the Rab'a massacre one of the largest killings of protesters in a single day. During his legal studies at Stanford Law School, Ahmad co-authored a report on the civilian consequences of U.S. drone strikes in Pakistan. Ahmad, your human rights work and commitment is vast and deep, and now you as you embark on this uh, new part of your journey where you're applying those skills in Israel and Palestine, you're obviously faced with the very real political realities that um, that line and 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 characterize human rights advocacy work can you please tell us a little bit more about your ordeal and where your case stands?
1: Sure so before taking up my post which is to be based in uh, Jerusalem Ramallah we applied for a work permit um, so I could take up my post on the ground and be able to engage fully with Israeli and Palestinian partners, civil society, and to have direct access to those that experience human rights violations on an everyday basis. We had hoped that this would come through in October so I could immediately relocate. Um, However, we received delay after delay, um, and it was really difficult to make sense of the cause behind that delay. In December, I actually had confirmed meetings, including with a representative from the Israeli government, um, but the Interior Ministry at the time would not assure me that I would have been allowed. Entry. um, If I arrived at Ben Gurion Airport, so we ultimately had to cancel that meeting and that planned trip in December. Um, We finally received a response on February 20th, and it was a denial, and particularly galling was the explanation um, for that denial, which was, um, the claim that Human Rights Watch was engaged in propaganda, um, masquerading as human rights advocacy. Um, it was galling for many reasons. Um, uh in, in part as a result of the fact that you know Human Rights Watch reports from every other country in the Middle East and North Africa. Um, we document abuses in over 90 countries across the world. We cover abuses committed by all parties. While we certainly have a number of publications and research that focus on abuses by the Israeli authorities, we've also documented abuses by the Palestinian Authority and by Hamas. Again, not to say that um, there's a parody in those those abuses, but we As in all conflicts, look at abuses that affect um, uh, human rights victims that come from um, all different backgrounds. Um, but also we've had, um, you know, long-standing professional um, engagement with um, Israeli authorities like with any other government we work with. Um, so we were very surprised to see that denial. Um, of course, after the news broke, uh, the Israeli authorities immediately started backtracking, saying that they would reconsider the work permit decision if we appealed and that in the interim they would allow me to enter on it for a visit on a tourist visa. Those were statements made by the Foreign Minister. Ministry, the Interior Ministry, as well as by the Israeli Embassy in Washington. So based on those statements, we requested um, access uh, for me um, to arrive for a short-term visit. However, the following week, uh, we received a letter informing us that I was not authorized to enter the country um, and claiming that um, the, 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 the same explanation was given about Human Rights Watch, characterizing it in similar terms. Um, and. Again, immediately after the news broke, within minutes, the foreign ministry claimed that the letter was sent in error and that uh, I was, of course, welcome to enter um, on a tourist visa. So we're left with a confounding situation where clearly – Israeli authorities have, are unable to distinguish between justified criticism of Israeli policy based on well-documented research and political propaganda and you know the failure to allow us access to the country on multiple occasions now really raises the question of you know what does Israel have to hide and why um, why is serious scrutiny if it's human rights record something that um, would lead them to, to bar access to Human Rights Watch which as you mentioned introduction, is um, a, a move that, you know, puts it in a camp with among the most repressive countries that we work in. Um, you know, we have offices and staff based in Jordan, in Lebanon, in Tunisia, yet Israel, which, you know, claims it's the only democracy in the Middle East, you know, has now, um, you know, taken a step that these states have not taken and really putting it in a camp with, uh, with some really unsavory actors.
0: You raise a really good point, Omar, um, and it's, it's actually resonant with now what the new What Trump's, um, ambassador to the UN, Nikki Haley, is saying, which is that one of her, one of the kind of the trademarks that she wants to make in her career as the U.S. ambassador to the UN is to combat the bias at the, within the UN and at the Human Rights Council in particular against Israel. And so, you know, bringing up these issues, one begins to think, are these valid or not? And if you look at the record, Israel's treatment of Human Rights Watch, Israel's critique of the Human Rights Council is actually not unique. It fits in a legacy, a very long legacy for Israel. In 2001, it boycotted the World Conference Against Racism in Durban, South Africa. In 2004, it uh, refused to participate in the International Court of Justice proceedings on the route of the separation barrier or the apartheid wall. Um, In 2008, it denied entry For Richard Falk, the Special Rapporteur to the Occupied Palestinian Territories, in 2009, it refused to cooperate with the Human Rights Council's fact-finding delegation to the Gaza Strip in the aftermath of Operation Cast Lead. In 2013... It unilaterally pulled out of the Universal Periodic Review, separate, you know, because those are all part of those are all UN uh, mechanisms or derivative of derivative of it. But it also has refused to ratify the Rome Statute that brings the International Criminal Court into being, um, because it argues that Article Eight of the Rome Statute, which reiterates the criminality of civilian settlements in occupied territories, is also politicized and pointed. You know, so thinking about this, it would seem that Israel's more concerned with external scrutiny and human rights generally than it is with Human Rights Watch's political approach. Um, And so... And, and And maybe there 's more to be said about that, given what Israel is also doing domestically, even domestically, in July two thousand and sixteen, the Knesset passed a new law that imposes onerous reporting requirements on Israeli human rights organizations, critical of the government domestically. so you raised the question, what does Israel um, have to hide and you know israel 's strategy has been well let 's just attack all of human rights in general. What would you make of of these concerns, and how has Human Rights Watch tried to address them in the past?
1: I think that's an excellent point, Nora. I mean, I think to ignore the larger context would really be to miss the story. This is not... Uh, necessarily an exceptional event taking into account the larger climate um, in Israel and Palestine. Certainly for us as Human Rights Watch, it was an ominous turn given that we've had at least to Israel and the West Bank, but as you noted in the outset, Gaza is different. We've had regular access for nearly three decades, but but certainly that has not been the case with many other um, international bodies that have sought to look more deeply at Israel's um, troubling human rights record. So I think I think the con- understanding the context starts with the domestic scene with human rights defenders in Israel and in Palestine. And in addition to the law that you mentioned, you know we have cases of Israeli human rights groups like um, Beit Salem or Breaking the Silence that have been accused of slander or of discrediting the discrediting the state or its institutions for its criticism of particular policies. And when you look at Palestinian rights defenders, they, they received much worse. They've been subject in some cases to travel restrictions and even arrests and criminal charges. Today, you have Palestinian rights defenders that are facing what in many cases amount to trumped up charges um, as a result of their human rights work. Um, and of course, you also have Palestinian right defenders from anonymous sources receiving death threats, anonymous death threats. Uh, For the work that they're doing. And then when you look at on an international scale, certainly we've seen um, Israel not only block access for recognized UN and other um, international bodies, but really limit um, their uh, not follow uh, UN resolutions, including the most recent resolution uh, passed in December uh, unanimously by the Security Council regarding the illegality of settlements. Israel showed No respect for international law and for the uh, consensus international opinion when it immediately announced within weeks that it was going to not only dramatically um, uh, increase um, settlements in, in blocks and outside of settlement blocks but then outrageously passing a law that allows for the retro appropriation. In other words, of privately owned Palestinian land, um, setting the stage for many unauthorized outposts to eventually be integrated in a legal sense within the Israeli system. And of course, everything I just said doesn't even account for Gaza, right? In Gaza, one aspect of the closure that hasn't received as much attention is that Israel has virtually blocked human rights organizations from having access to the gaza strip um and since 2010 human rights watch has only been granted permission a single time by the israeli authorities to enter gaza and it's not just the international um human rights organizations it's the palestinian groups within gaza that themselves have been subjected to incredible limitations so you have this crippling um closure of gaza where um uh, uh, Palestinian citizens of Gaza are not able effectively to travel outside or inside and where you have um, supplies not able to come in and out. But you also have human rights groups that aren't able to carry out their missions in documenting abuses by all parties Uh, Primarily, of course, Israel, but also by Hamas um, regarding what's happening in the Gaza Strip. And one of the arguments that Israel has made to the International Criminal Court to say that the International Criminal Court should not further look into abuses that take place in the territory of Palestine – is that human rights groups have access and are able to document these abuses at the very same time that it's virtually sealing off the Gaza Strip, not only for um, Palestinians, but also for international groups that are trying to do work there. For us at Human Rights Watch, we have local staff on the ground in Gaza, and in my capacity as Israel-Palestine director at Human Rights Watch, that's part of my mandate, but I have to rely on working remotely with Local staff as a result of the limitations, not just on my ability to enter Israel in the West Bank, but even if Israel were to relent and to eventually allow us to enter on a tourist visa or to have a work permit, there's a separate question of having access to Gaza and not just um, now, but at times um, where there may be active armed conflict between Israeli forces and Hamas.
0: Certainly, Hamas and other Palestinian armed groups um but on this point, Amr, you're raising a really critical issue, which is one about uh, the state of human rights and of the way that it's regulated. When Israel attacks, you know, this broad, what looks, seems like a broad attack domestically against human rights defenders, internationally against multilateral organizations, uh, the ICC and the United Nations and its various human rights treaty bodies, it's basically making a frontal attack on Human rights and substance and inform, um, in a way that risks taking down the entire framework as a way to shield itself from scrutiny. And so what, what, how do you feel that impacts, um, the work generally in the state of human rights work generally, given that Israel isn't, for example, a small, you know, negligible country that's already deemed a rogue state by the West, but instead Israel is very significant. It's the, you know, the U.S.'s um, self-proclaimed most unique ally in the Middle East. You mentioned that it's regarded as the only democracy in the Middle East. It is the only nuclear power in the Middle East. Um, and so these things, you know, make us have to pay attention that these attacks that Israel is making on human rights isn't just compromising the work um, in in Palestine or for Palestinians and Israelis, but it's compromising the work for human rights generally. What would you make of that?
1: So in some ways, Israel's, um, the Israeli authorities claim that Human Rights Watch was engaged in propaganda masquerading as human rights advocacy wasn't unique I mean, it's the same kind of argument we heard from the Egyptian authorities, for example, when I um, covered Egypt in the aftermath of the 2013 coup and amid uh, serious violations of human rights there. They made similar claims. We've heard similar claims made in some of the other countries that we work in. But I think what makes it unique is the point that you raised that, you know, Israel, as part of its message that it puts out to the international community, talks about its commitment to democratic values. And I think that, obviously, is inconsistent with these sorts of activities. But I also think there is a larger climate now in the world. And it's not just in the United States under the Trump administration. I think it some of it has to do with the ascendancy of Russia. Some of it has to do though with the role of states like Turkey, which have an important regional influence and, in- and increasingly are becoming more repressive by the day, with mass arrests of journalists and dissidents and others. And if you look at different regions across the world, you see a rise in populism in a form of populism that defines national interest. Um, in a way that juxtaposes it with commitments to international bodies and um, international community and as a result values like – human rights and international law, which are part of the fabric of the international system. So I think if you really take a step back and you contextualize what Israel is doing in the context of where the United States, the United Kingdom, Russia, Turkey, so many other countries are moving, certainly within the region um, with 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 the resurgence of Assad, Syria, with uh, Sisi and elsewhere, you really see a very troubling situation across the globe where you have a rise of um, a form of populism that seems to, as part of its creed, undermine human rights, which has long been considered a universal value, and that certainly has um, an effect. Human Rights Watch at its core, our methodology involves the idea of shining a light on the darkest practices that take place across the globe. Our belief is if you put a spotlight on terrible abuse and you bring it out in the open, you will create pressure you know, to then generate change. Of course, we also engage in advocacy to try and bring that change about. But if you're in a world now where governments are not shamed, where, where governments don't feel the need to heed international pressure, that's really – scary to what human rights practice may look like across the region, across the world in the coming four to eight years. And again, it's not exclusive to the the Trump administration, right? We saw uh, worrying trends under the prior administration in the United States on a range of issues. And certainly in Israel, it's not just a result of the very right-wing coalition that's in place there. We've seen uh, abuses and disregard for international institutions, as you mentioned, that took place under different governments. But certainly it's it's quite worrying and it's something that i think those of us that are concerned about human rights and uh, democratic values and social justice across the globe need to be actively thinking about
0: you raise a really great point which is the kind of the the diminishing the diminishing relatives of these shaming tactics the diminishing relative uh the relevance of what can be considered human rights abuses i think if one were to think about it here we're in the united states i'm speaking to from Um, From Virginia, you're in New York, you know, thinking about kind of the diminishing relative of a fact and truth and what becomes salient um, in terms of uh, shaping our thinking and taking that to scale as you have uh, in your in your comment and thinking about right human rights is just not going to be as compelling with regimes in the Middle East and elsewhere that are defining justice in in very nuanced localized uh, nationalist terms. So I you know that also brings me to this question about the you know your human rights watch's philosophy to date which is you know you want to shine a light on the darkest practices all over the world. To do that you have had to get the voluntary compliance of the states where you want to go in with your flashlight <laughs> and that creates a significant challenge because on the one hand you want to apply pressure on the state on the other hand you can't apply too much pressure because you want to continue to um, be granted their 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 voluntary participation. How do you balance that? I mean, and you've had to balance that in several contexts. You've mentioned Egypt, but you've worked on um, the issue of, uh, of representing Guantanamo detainees in the United States uh, or by the United States. You've, um, you know, investigated the use of drone strikes um, on the Af- Afghanistan-Pakistan border, and you've gone into Pakistan. So you've had to deal with this tenuous balance in several contexts. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what that means for human rights advocacy and advocates?
1: Sure. Um, And it's an interesting question to ask me because I've had a, uh, you know, a track record of, of, uh, you know, getting access denied, whether it be Egypt or now in, in Israel and had issues before in Syria when I lived there.
0: Tell us a little bit how you were denied in Egypt.
1: Well, in Egypt, um, you know, we released. We, we spent a year documenting mass killings um, carried out um, by um, by the the Egyptian um, government after the coup, including the Raba massacre. You know, the the one of the largest single day killings of protesters in modern world history. Um, you know, you had over eight hundred Egyptians killed in the span of twelve hours on August fourteenth, twenty thirteen. So, I, as Human Rights Watch, at the time, um, with colleagues, we documented those. Killings, And we determined that they were crimes against humanity, and we were able to establish the link that this was a planned massacre carried out at the highest levels of the Egyptian government. Um, Like with other regimes, um, what comes to mind is China um, around Tiananmen, Egypt really clamped down on even reference to talking about Raban, what happened on that day. So, you know, we documented crimes against humanity and the role of senior Egyptian officials in carrying out those massacres, which we determined to be planned massacres that were planned at um, uh, by the Egyptian authorities, including by then Defense Minister, now President Abdel Fattah Sisi. Um, So we prepared a report on our findings, which we shared with the Egyptian authorities. Uh, We sent uh, our findings to them several months in advance and sought their comment. We received no response, Um, and we came to Cairo to to release the report, um, and we planned a launch that included journalists, leading NGOs, um, and and advocacy meetings. And uh, the head of Human Rights Watch, Ken Roth, and the Middle East North Africa director, Sarah Lee Whitson, were due to meet me in Cairo. Um, on the one-year anniversary, just ahead of the one-year anniversary of the massacre to release the report. Ken and Sarah Lee were both denied entry upon arrival at Cairo Airport, and they were detained and then deported that evening. I had been allowed entry that day into country. I'd been based most of the year in Cairo, but um, as the security climate tightened, I was in and out, and um, I left at the same time. And then the next day, When we released the report, um, we faced a barrage of similar types of accusations that Israel is now making about um, us being propaganda. They claimed for the the Muslim Brotherhood, and that has resulted since in Human Rights Watch not having – we used to have an office in Cairo and and and, and have relatively open access, which has not been the case since then. But going back to your question um, regarding this question of access, I think every international organization – Debates this question of, you know, of access versus carrying out your mandate and having impact. So on one extreme end of the, of the scale, you have a group like the ICRC, the Red Cross, which airs all the way on the side of access to the point where they won't criticize Rarely ever either side. They keep their interventions confidential, but as a result, they get access everywhere. Guantanamo, you know, in in, in places across the Middle East where many other groups can't enter because governments know that they will stay confidential. We're more on the other side of the spectrum. In fact, we might be the opposite pole of that um, spectrum um, in the sense that our mandate at its core involves exposing fact-finding and exposing abuse and then advocating for change. So our key principle is consistency. So we will not change the results of our research and our findings because we want access to a country. That is very clear. And we have the ability as an international organization headquartered in New York, when we operate in a place like Cairo, to be able to, to, to release findings that maybe local groups aren't able to make because they face um, threats that could include not only imprisonment and family, et cetera, but could be a lot more severe. So we take that as an obligation um, to make sure that we're consistent and that we're not pulling back from research because we're concerned about access so that is something that we stick to even if it means a door being shut on us now just because we aren't may be formally allowed access doesn't necessarily mean – doesn't mean that we don't do our work. We find other ways of doing it, Um, and we make different arrangements on a case-by-case basis, some of which involves entry in in different ways, um, some of which involves using local staff or using other sorts of evidence to make our claims. So we will always err on the side of being consistent. That said, we are trying to have an impact. We're not just trying to set a record – Uh, when we release our reports and sometimes to have impact with different audiences you need to use tones that will work with them, um, and so the question of tone and how we use tone will depend on who our advocacy target is. So we will make calculations around who the key decision makers are and where there may be opportunities to have influence, and that will frame the way in which we think about um, tone and how we frame things. But in terms of the substance of our work and our findings, that is consistent. And if the government chooses based on our well, you know, our well. Researched findings to deny us entry. We that doesn't stop us from doing our work. Um, we just will find different ways to do it.
0: So it's really interesting because you know there's a commitment to the core work. There's a commitment to the application of, of human rights, regardless of where it is, regardless of who it's committed by. Um, and yet, obviously, it's still very it's it's a very very politicized issue. And one of the things Human Rights Watch has faced critique both for oftentimes pandering to these critiques, what it may be, what it may consider absolutely necessary, and oftentimes because of its own internal logic of what it thinks, what it thinks the application of human rights looks like. And so... Human Rights has Human Rights Watch has, has been criticized not only by states these states that want you know are protesting its findings but also by individuals who find that they're just not satisfied with what seems like an apolitical approach or perhaps vulnerability to donors at the end of the day it's an organization that doesn't function on its own but is is you know entwined and and imbricated in these um you know fundraising networks and these political Networks, and so you have yet another hurdle and challenge to overcome. How do how do you find yourself navigating that terrain um, with individuals who have individuals and organizations? Who, who take issue with Human Rights Watch's work?
1: Sure. So I think, look, I mean, Human Rights Watch, as part of our mission, and that's not a mission that everybody will agree with, is that we don't take positions that are political or that are um, taking sides in a, say, a war. So Human Rights Watch, for example, and it's a position that was criticized, and I think that criticism certainly, um, it, you know, it makes raises good points. We'll say, how can, you know, for example – Human Rights Watch not oppose the war on Iraq um, or not take a position maybe most controversially on the occupation itself because occupation like war under international law, there is a regime you know, to, to sort of document that aspect of it. But our focus is documenting abuses within conflict, within war or within occupation as opposed to sort of challenging the fact of that occupation. That's sort of something we set out and that's sort of how we intervene. So that is an approach that, that – I think everybody would agree with, but but we also don't aspire to be the only actor that acts on issues, and I think it's valuable to have different groups that will chime in on those issues. But our intersection point then will be documenting abuse in the context of war occupation. So for us, for example, settlements are a war crime, and they are a very clear black letter violation um, of the Fourth Geneva Convention. And of course, they also <laughs> – at its core involve a significant litany of associated human rights abuses of Palestinians. And so that will be our intersection point instead of challenging the fact of occupation or the fact of war. And you know, I think for us, that position is a principled one and it's one that allows us to um, to really document abuses and um and, and to be able to be impartial to the extent that's possible and in very difficult situations. And I think part of the credibility of our voice is that commitment to objective, independent research, including not taking money from governments um, and and really being able to set our own research agenda. And in terms of fundraising, I think there's always innuendo and suggestions, but I can say with confidence that in my time as Israel-Palestine director um, at Human Rights Watch, never have concerns of donors or other funders impacted the way I've conceived of my research agenda or carried out my research, and I felt the same way um, in doing the work on Egypt, um, that I had the mandate and the commitment across the organization to go about doing the work that we felt um, was important to human rights victims, all human rights victims on the ground. Now – we also criticize the Palestinian Authority in Hamas, and that's not to suggest that there's a parity between their abuses and that of the Israeli occupation. I think that's clear that that's not the case, and nor is it our objective to sit and count how many reports we've done on Israel and compare that to how many we've done on the Palestinian Authority or Hamas. But rather, there are very concerning trends in in the West Bank and Gaza that need to be documented and exposed. Those include arbitrary detention of journalists and of dissidents, both by the Palestinian Authority and by Hamas. They include torture and other abuse of detainees. They include in in Gaza um, executions and death sentences being issued at alarming rates. And they include a whole set of other practices that, that are very, very concerning. So we will document those abuses, but not because we're in search of satisfying particular constituents or donors or because we feel we need that to give us legitimacy to criticize Israeli actions, but rather because they affect real people's lives on the ground in in, in important ways. And, you know, for example, in Gaza, in, in January, you had you know, hundreds of people take to the streets to protest the fact that ele- they only receive uh, three to four hours of electricity on, on many days and in Jabalia camp and otherwise. And while certainly Israel has a, a fundamental responsibility as the occupying power to provide electricity, much of that anger was directed at the governing authority in Gaza, which is Hamas. And in response, we saw dozens of dissidents arrested by Hamas. We see similar trends in the West Bank, where you have the Palestinian Authority under the leadership of Mahmoud Abbas not only arresting members of Hamas but even those from other factions that are perceived to pose a challenge to the Palestinian Authority itself. Those are important abuses, they affect real people's lives, and they are violations of binding international humanitarian and human rights law, which fall within the core of our mandate. So we will continue to document those abuses, just as we document the many abuses carried out by the Israeli government in Israel itself, in the West Bank, and in Gaza.
0: You bring up really good points. And so, you know, if, if, if it's not human rights uh, mandate to declare that, for example, the occupation is illegal or a war is illegal. that certain- certainly is that certainly becomes the onus for the rest of us and also the pressure that the rest of us can be placing on or international you know human rights organizations like human rights watch who I think we have we have a duty to also push Uh, to take those positions. But in regards to, you know, the way that this plays out and how it implicates real people's lives, there's always going to be a balance about, you know, the individual, um, the individual experience and the context in which that experience is, is happening in order to make and, you know, and to prescribe the most responsible interventions. And I, I don't know that it impacts, you know, the substance of what you document as much as it's going to impact the substance of what's recommended. And oftentimes a recommendation, as we know, can um, do more harm than good. But you bring up really excellent points and, and and set, you know, the tone for us to be thinking about what is our responsibility and even in, in working together with uh, Human Rights Watch and other international human rights organizations doing this work. So, Amar, on that note, I just want to ask you, what are your next steps regarding your work and what should we be on the lookout for?
1: sure um I, I just want to say one comment about what you said which I agree wholeheartedly with I think when it comes to those of us in the world that care about the advancement of, of universal human rights we have to understand that different groups have different contributions to make and that there's a value in these different uh, mix of methodologies and approaches the answer is not to find one organization that does it all or says it all but rather to see it as part of something that's larger that's part of a larger human rights movement and to understand the the role of those groups in that context. So um, in terms of our research agenda, look, we have, I think, several uh, major priorities um, and I think things to look forward to. I think one is we continue to do work around settlement businesses. So we continue to look at, we released a report in January of 2016 called Occupation Inc., which set out why doing business in settlements is a violation of international law, how it involves both contributes to and benefits from a system of a two-tiered system, discriminatory system that takes place in the West Bank, and how it involves other policies like land confiscation and dispossession of Palestinians. Um, so for Human Rights Watch, we call in that report for a cessation of business activities in settlements. And since releasing that report, we've continued to do advocacy that targets particular industries that are involved in operating businesses and settlements. We did a report in September of 2016 that looked at the role of FIFA um, in sponsoring matches on pitches that are in settlements. In, in, in one case that we documented, on the land of a family where um, members of that family play football and their pursuit of playing football has been impeded by that settlement and settlement pitch. Um, we're also uh, looking at the role of Israeli banks and providing infrastructure and support to operation of settlement businesses, um, which is a forthcoming publication that we're looking into. We're also doing um, work on the closure of Gaza. Uh, We'll have a report forthcoming around the access of human rights organizations and how that has been limited as a result of the closure of Gaza. And we'll continue to do research that helps shed light on the um, significant effects the closure has on the lives of Palestinians from Gaza, including um, looking at areas like water and electricity from a human rights perspective. Um, We're also looking at Arbitrary Detention and Torture by the Palestinian Authority in Hamas. And that continues to be an area of research focus that we'll, um, that we'll continue to look into. And, of course, this year is significant because it marks the 50th anniversary of the occupation of um, the West Bank, Gaza, and, of course, other territories as well. And we have several pieces of research that will help elaborate on what the reality today looks like on the ground, uh, including looking at issues like the revocation of residency rights of Palestinians in Jerusalem and elsewhere, and, as well as looking at home demolitions in, in Israel as well as in the West Bank, and also starting to think through what is 50 years of occupation mean from a human rights perspective under international humanitarian law occupation the the framework of occupation law is meant to protect the rights of the indigenous people pr- to protect their resources etc so that when an occupation ends that population can eventually you know inherit those things again but what does that mean In the context of a permanent occupation, international humanitarian law allows the occupying power to suspend in some cases, um, temporarily rights in the name of security. But, you know, while that can be a measure that's taken for a short-term occupation. Does it have the same credence 50 years of occupation later? Take a practice like administrative detention, which is only legal when it's temporary and exceptional. Is Israel's practice of administrative detention in its 50th year of occupation where over 500 Palestinians um, as of January 2017 are being held administrative detention? Is Israel meeting the standard? I think clearly it's not. So I think there are larger questions for us as a community of of international lawyers and as human rights activists to really think through what not only the date 50 years, but what is permanent occupation. And at a time in which the Israeli authorities are very openly speaking of their desire to annex parts of the West Bank, maybe even the entire West Bank, what does that mean in terms of, 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 of human rights protection? And how can we as advocates most effectively... Use the legal tools to um, advance an agenda of human rights for all human rights protection for all people.
0: Your work is, is uh, cut out for you, Amar. There's a lot to be done. I think on this, you know, the, one it's a long list that you mentioned, but I don't think one that that that, that necessarily is insurmountable because of their interrelatedness and the fact that you are building on Human Rights Watch's legacy of already doing that work. But on this latter question that you pose about the permanency of occupation, which is meant to be short-term in nature and to facilitate a transition to a status quo ante before you know the beginning of, of hostilities, that the questions that you raise are also being, I think, uh, thought about not only by the human rights um, advocates and 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 scholars, so to speak, but also by Israelis themselves. And so for those who have been paying attention in the aftermath of the Security Council Resolution 2334, which you mentioned in, earlier in the interview, and to the present, as we saw the um, ratification of the regularization law, we're seeing a revival of a discourse amongst Israelis that there is no occupation so in response to the question you raise about the 50 years the, the response is well, what 50 years? There's never been an occupation to begin with. Jewish sovereignty has extended to these territories. What happened in 1967 wasn't the occupation of those territories, but their liberation from Arabs um, and, and the reversion to a Jewish sovereignty. And, and one has to think about that even that argument, is based in um, a legal argument that's articulated by a labor government that's re-articulated by a Hebrew university Israeli law professor in 1968 and then enshrined by Israel's military government um, um, years later in 1971 by Mira Shimgar, who comes to become the, the chief justice of the Israeli Supreme Court for about two decades. And so all of this is also immersed, even the response to the question of you know the legality of fifty years occupation, the response to it is also a legal argument that one that Israelis have made that there isn't an occupation, and so the work is not only you know to figure out how to respond to the to the enduring nature of the occupation but also how to respond to the legal strategies that are deployed in order to facilitate its nature and its permanency
1: I think that's right, and I think um, it's important. To think about because of the way the discourse has continued to be in the international community, right? There's been this um, obsession around this idea of a two state solution in a way that's, and again, not talking about solutions as solutions because as human rights advocates, you know, we don't take positions on one state, two state, three states, four states, whatever the answer is, but the reality is focusing on um, the idea of occupation itself and around the associated solutions to that, I think in a lot of cases misses the reality on the ground. And that conversation, especially the the sort of obsession by the U.S. government and by some in the international community, the two-state solution, often provides cover for the failure to address Israeli human rights abuses in the West Bank and Gaza that have, you know, stunted Palestinian economic development and really at a fundamental level that, you know, undermined the basic dignity and autonomy of five million Palestinians that live under Israeli occupation. And people oppose Israeli policies even at an international level because they interfere with this goal of separating the two peoples, not because settlements are are war crimes under international humanitarian law, not because they involve seizure of Palestinian land, not because these policies at a very basic and fundamental level upend daily Palestinian life. Whether it be freedom of movement, whether it be the ability to have livelihoods, so to have farms or to have natural resources, to, you know, to go to school, you know, to have a family that can be politically active without worrying about losing a son or a mother uh, to detention. So I think it's important that we our conversation is enriched, and it's not just focused on um, solutions or around, you know, around whether or not something's occupied, but really at a fundamental level, look at the reality on the ground. Today, you have the US government, well, maybe not today, but the US government as of a month ago, or six weeks ago, or two months ago, and the UN and other bodies that are very openly saying that what's Happening on the ground, the reality is one governing power, which is the Israeli authorities that in effect have power between um, in the West Bank, Gaza and in Israel in more or less permanent um, occupation of the West Bank and Gaza. But, you know, con- conducting one set of policies that are driven by creating separate and unequal systems that are based around ethnicity and origin. That's the reality on the ground. So our conversation needs to start from that point and say and, and acknowledge what's happening and to work to address that reality in a way that protects the human rights of all peoples on the ground. And that is not you you know allowing discourse of f- framework to shift attention from that.
0: Thank you so much, Ahmad. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. We're definitely going to keep our eye on out on uh, your movement and the work that you're producing on behalf of Human Rights Watch and, and the human rights advocacy that you continue to do. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me. It's always an honor to talk to you, Nora.